Okay, good afternoon and welcome to the San Francisco Historic Preservation Commission hearing for Wednesday, July 19th, 2023. To enable public participation, SFGov TV is broadcasting and streaming this hearing live, and we will receive public comment for each item on today's agenda. Each speaker will be allowed up to three minutes, and when you have 30 seconds remaining, you will hear a chime indicating your time is almost up. When your allotted time is reached, I will announce that your time is up and take the next person queued to speak. We will take comment from persons in City Hall first and then open up the remote access lines. For those persons participating via WebEx, the password is HPC2023, and please raise your hand um, when public comment is called for the item and you're interested in speaking to. For those persons calling in to submit their testimony, you need to call area code 415-655-0001 and enter access code 2664 2024835 and then press pound twice. Uh, you then need to wait for the item you are interested in speaking to and for public comment to be announced. To comment, you must enter star three to raise your hand. Once you've raised your hand, you will hear the prompt that you have raised your hand to ask a question. Please wait to speak until the host calls on you. When you hear that your line, excuse me, when you when you hear you are <coughs> unmuted, that is your indication to begin speaking. Best practices are to call from a quiet location and please mute the volume on your television or computer. For those attending in person, please line up on the screen side of the room or to your right. Please speak clearly and slowly and if you care to state your name for the record. Uh, at this time, I'll ask that we silence any mobile devices that may sound off during these proceedings. And at this time, I will take roll. Commission President Matsuda. Here. Commission Vice President Nugas Warren. Here. Commissioner Vergara. Here. And Commissioner Wright. Here. We expect Commissioner Foley to be absent today, and Commissioner So is now a board member with the SFMTA. Commissioners, first on your agenda is general public comment. At this time, members of the public may address the Commission on items of interest to the public that are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the Commission, except agenda items. With respect to agenda items, your opportunity to address the Commission will be afforded when the item is reached in the meeting. Each member of the public may address the commission for up to three minutes. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three. Seeing no members of the public in the chambers, let's go to our remote callers. Good afternoon, uh, Historic Preservation Commission. This is Georgia Shudish. I want to uh, comment on the uh, conditional use authorization that will be at the Planning Commission tomorrow for the demolition of the second day tradition home by the master architectural firm of Hertzka and Knowles. I was concerned that this fact wasn't discussed in the staff report for the Planning Commission. Um, if you read the email I sent to this commission and the Planning Commission, this 3,900 square foot home at 3555 Pacific Avenue was very fine inside per the web ad and according to the HRA letter prepared by staff, quote, retains a high level of integrity and contains many of the second day traditions character defining features, close quote. But then goes on to write, quote, it is not considered an innovative example or full expression of the style, close quote. However, in Mary Brown's 2011 historic context statement entitled San Francisco Modern Architecture and Landscape Design 1935 to 1970, she wrote on page 183 that there are fewer than 150 second day tradition single family homes in San Francisco. And she wrote that it was a conservative estimate. With this demolition approved, as tomorrow I assume, 
of this project into an 8,700-square-foot, $7 million teardown, there will, not, there will now be even fewer. Previously, as mentioned in my email, the H.C. Bowman A-rated home at 20 Raycliffe Terrace was altered out of existence and did a redesign to be just under the Section 317 demo calculation tantamount to demolition thresholds during an enforcement. So it never had a CUA that it should have had. So that is two second-day tradition homes designed by master architects, if not full practitioners of the second-day tradition, but certainly influenced by it, that has been lost and that needs to be brought to this commission's attention, which is why I sent the email. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. Take care. Bye. Oh, good afternoon, commissioners. This is Richard Rothman, and I'm not here to talk about murals or the Mothers Building, but I am here to talk about Bear Street. I happen to listen to the uh, Board of Permit Appeals and not knowing what was on the agenda, soon realized there was an item about uh, the Rinkin Annex and that uh, there was approval to put signage on the outside of the building without coming to this commission. And uh, all I can say is the Board of Permit Appeals spent five hours on this subject and asked to be continued and to have a uh, city attorney write opinions. Uh, I'm not going to say what the, the Board of Permit Appeals, but I did look at the signage after, and I think this, this item should be coming to this commission. I was always under the assumption that if once a building's a city landmark and if anything's to go on the outside of the commission, uh, the building, it had to come before your uh, commission, and apparently it was in some law in 2018 that it was uh, beat up the process, but this needs to be changed, and maybe <clears throat> this commission needs to have a hearing on this matter, and so that there's more oversight on what goes on the outside of the building. And these weren't small signs, these were pretty uh, very noticeable signs that were going on the outside of Rinkin Annex. And they weren't, you know, in bad taste, but it's just the principle that things shouldn't go on the outside of historic buildings unless the commission uh, approves it and that there's a public hearing about it. Um, thank you for listening to me. Go ahead, caller. Uh, hi, this is Roman Galoisi, uh, living on Shotwell. Uh, I just wanted to express my support for the project from La Scuola on 18th Street. Um, since they... Sir, I'm going to interrupt you right now because we are on general public comment. If you want to speak to the item on 18th Street, you have to wait until it is called. Okay. Oh, I apologize. That's quite all right. Okay. okay, last call for general public comment. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no additional requests to speak, commissioners, general public comment is closed. 
and we can move on to department matters. Item one, department announcements. Good afternoon, commissioners. Nice to see everyone and nice to see a nice packed room. Um, I have a couple of announcements for you. Um, first and foremost, I want us to welcome or introduce you to our planning interns um, and our planning department internship class of 2023. We have a total of four, 40 interns, all of which are paid. Um, for the interns that are here, how about you stand up so we can awkwardly look at you. But um, <laughs> um, super happy to welcome them. We have 16 college and 24 high school students. Um, and so we received close to 900 letters of interest, particularly for the college program. And each college in turn is paired with a planner and assigned to a specific project. Some of their projects include assisting in the housing element, um, implementation and rezoning process, creating an equity library, developing a new tracking system for our environmental planning group, um, educating the community on our transportation element, documenting and mapping our capital projects in specific areas, and assisting with our um, young planner program. So each week, our interns engage and participate with a variety of activities um, to basically learn about planning and learn a little bit more about the city. And this program um, has been going on for quite a while. It's managed by one of our principal planners and assistant ZA, um, Tina Tam. Um, and she is also the main uh, mentor for our young planner program, which is entering its third year and continues its partnership with Opportunities for All and San Francisco YouthWorks. So we are super excited to have them here at the Historic Preservation Commission um, and welcome them here. Um, my other announcements include um, some staffing updates on our side. Um, I don't know if you have heard, but one of our principal planners, Marcel Boudreaux, um, is leaving us um, shortly and taking her place to assist us in the management um, of the preservation program will be one of our senior planners, um, Jonathan Vimmer, who I think just scooted out. But um, Jonathan basically is a senior planner on our District 3 team. And so he'll be helping um, Elizabeth, Natalia, Allison, and I with the management of the preservation work in Districts 3 and District 6. And Jonathan's coming back in to say hello. Um, so um, other news, um, at the board yesterday, the Parkside Library landmark nomination is making its way and passed its first read. So that, um, that building is on its way to becoming our next city landmark um, within uh, probably another month or so. And then finally, also at the board um, from Monday and Tuesday, um, the downtown legislation um, is kind of making its way through and uh, Supervisor Peskin introduced a resolution mm -hmm. to kind of um, remove some of the streamlining that uh, we had worked through regarding um, uh, administrative certificates appropriateness and permits to alter. Um, we still obviously still have um, full uh, review or say you still have all of your full review with regard to those projects in those areas. Um, but it was kind of a small edit that we will then roll out accordingly. So. And that concludes my report. Welcome everyone. Very good. If there are no questions, we can move on to commission matters. Item two, consideration of adoption draft minutes for the June 15th joint hearing with the planning commission. You will only be considering the portion applying to the historic preservation commission and the draft minutes for June 21st, 2023. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on their minutes. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no request to speak, commissioners, public comment on your minutes is closed, and they are now before you. Is there a motion? 
Motion to approve. I'll second that. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion to adopt your minutes. Commissioner Vergara? Uh, uh, yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Nagaswaran? Yes. And Commission President Matsuda? Yes. So moved, commissioners. <coughs> that motion passes unanimously four to zero. And place us on item three, commission comments and questions. Uh, I had a question for staff, I guess, Mr. Sucre. Um, the two uh, members of the public who um, joined us by telephone a, f a few minutes ago, Ms. Chumash and Mr. Rothman, they, they brought up um, some points I don't think that the commission was fully aware of, particularly the email that Ms. Chumash referred to regarding 3555 specific and then Mr. Rothman's concern about Rincon Annex. Um, could you look into that for us and let us know? Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. Okay. I know Elizabeth can speak to the Pacific okay, Avenue great. project and then the Rincon Annex project, we can um, provide an update at great. the next Thank hearing. Thank Hello, uh, Elizabeth Gordon, John Keir Planning Department staff. Um, in regard to 355 Pacific, which is um, going to Planning Commission tomorrow, a historic resource assessment was reviewed um, for Pacific, and the, the site was reclassified to a Category C, which is not a historic resource. Um, the determination stated that although it did, uh, the property did retain some uh, a high level of integrity and contains many of the second bay uh, traditions character defining features it was not considered an innovative innovative example of or full expression of the style um, so it was not an individual resource through the lens of CEQA nor did it appear to be part of uh, concentration of significant buildings um, within an eligible historic district so a full review was done and this um can you tell me how this is weighed against what um, I guess Ms. Schumis referred to Mary Brown's report? Um, I think that the staff that reviewed the uh, the project and did this historic resource assessment did look at that report, but that found this just wasn't a contributing building. Thank you. Any other questions regarding this property? Uh, Commissioner Nagaswaran? Um, uh, she, she referred to a list um, of, of a, a number of buildings that mm -hmm. are um, of the Second Bay region tradition. It, do we have a list of those properties and what would be the high examples? And, um, you know, that, I think that would be the question there. But We do have a list. I can't, mm -hmm. I can't give you the high examples at the moment, but I could provide it. To the, uh, to the commission at a later date. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Wright. Yeah, um, just a question to kind of follow up um, uh, the description that it's, it was not an innovative example. I, I was just curious if that, um, if it needs to be um, an innovative example. Um, and I, I wonder if, uh, I, I don't know if we're getting into like enough discussion about this, if we need to, suggest that it go on the calendar for the next meeting. Uh, yeah, that, uh, Commissioner, just, to, yeah, we probably are treading a little bit on the lines of this a little bit. Um, 
if we want to enter into discussion, we're happy to answer, you know, add this into the agenda for the next HPC meeting. Um, I don't know if that will time well relative to the here the true. planning commission hearing that's coming up. So that's the thing to be mindful yeah. of. Yeah. So I guess I offer my comment um, for kind of consideration of staff um, when they're thinking about what else to what further information to bring to the commission. Okay. And if you can um, inform the planning commission that there was some inquiries at our commission about this particular property. Thank you. And Thank Mr. Sucre will follow up with the Rincon Annex. Thank you. Uh, are there any comments or questions from the commission? Any disclosures? I think we're ready to move on to the next agenda item. Very good. We took general public comment already, and if you're here to speak to a specific item, you'll be able to speak to that when we call the item. No. The clay is on for continuance, <coughs> and we're going to call that up next, but you'll only be able to speak to the matter of the continuance not the project itself. Commissioners, that'll place us under consideration of items proposed for continuance. Item four, case number 2021-010176-COA for the property at 2259 through 2261 Fillmore Street, a certificate of appropriateness. It is being proposed for continuance to September 6, 2023. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to speak to the commission on this item, only on the matter of continuance. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Amanda, do you want to speak to the clay on the matter of continuance? Okay, very good. Then public comment. At the hearing. Yeah, okay. Commissioners, um, with that public comment on your continuance calendar is closed and it is now before you. I have a motion to continue this motion item. Motion to continue. Second. Thank you, commissioners. On that motion to continue, item four, as proposed, Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Nagaswarn? Yes. And Commission President Matsuda? Yes. So moved, commissioners. That motion passes unanimously four <coughs> to zero and places under your regular calendar for items 5A through G. For case numbers 2023-00567. Oh, I apologize. I apologize. Thank you. Um, commissioners, if through the chair we can go back to your continuance calendar. Uh, I am remiss in calling out that we are requesting items 7 and 8 to be continued as well. For case numbers 2023-00513-4CRV for the Downtown Conservation District Design Guidelines and case number 2023-005133-CRV for the uh, delegation agreement. Um, there were some amendments presented at the Board of Supervisors that would prevent you from adopting these guidelines as submitted, and staff is requesting that the delegation agreement be pushed out as well. A continue to when? Um, the proposed continuance date would be September uh, 20th, I believe, is the date that 
Yes, September 20th. So members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on the two additional items being proposed for continuance, item seven and eight. Again, you need to come forward or press star three or raise your hand via WebEx, seeing no request to speak. Public comment is closed and the additional items being proposed for continuance are now before you, commissioners. Great. Uh, is there a motion to continue agenda item four, seven, and eight? I'll make that motion. Second. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion to also continue items seven and eight to September 20th. Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Nugasworn? Yes. And Commissioner President Matsuda? Yes. So move, commissioners. That motion passes unanimously. Four to zero. Thank you, Mr. Vimmer. Now, commissioners, we can move on to items 5A through G for case numbers 2023-005679 LBR, 2023-005680 LBR, 2023-005687 LBR, 2023-005682 LBR, 2023-005676 LBR, 2023-005685 LBR, and 2023-005684 LBR for properties at 3838 24th Street, 2239 Market Street, 686 Brandon Street, Store 17, 1901 Hyde Street, Pier 39 Dock J, 709 Jackson Street, and 1160 Illinois Street, respectively. These are all legacy business registry applications. Commissioners, before we begin the staff presentation, I just want to take the time and introduce you to three of our new staff members who are presenting for the first time in front of one of our commissions and are here for the first time in front of the Historic Preservation Commission. Um, first up is Maggie Dong. Um, Maggie started as a Planner One at the end of May um, this year and is currently in our District 4 team. Um, prior to joining the Planning Department, she worked at the Chinatown Community Development Center and was born and raised in San Francisco, a city that she loves. Uh, Manushi Mather joins us um, as a Senior Planner and Preservation Technical Specialist, also on the District 4 team, and Manushi has been with us since December of 2022. Uh, prior to joining uh, Prior to joining the department, Manushi was a planner with the city of East Palo Alto, and before that, she worked at the Georgia State Historic Preservation Office. Um, Manushi studied historic preservation at the University of Texas in Austin and has worked for the city of Austin, the French and Indian governments, on a wide range of historic preservation projects. And finally, we have Lizzie Mao, who is working on our District 6 team. Um, at prior to joining planning, um, Lizzie was an assistant planner at Urban Planning Partners, where she worked on local housing elements, housing policy implementation, and community outreach for the second Transbay Crossing. So welcome. Hello, commissioners. Elena Moore, planning staff. We have seven legacy businesses today. Um, so staff will give their presentations, and afterwards, business representatives and members of the public will have a chance to speak during public comment. I'll hand it over to Maggie now. Hello, uh, Maggie Dong, planning staff. The first legacy business application we have is for the Dubliner, a 36-year-old neighborhood sports bar on 24th Street in Vicksburg in Noe Valley. The Dubliner is a popular gathering space for locals and tourists, especially for live sports games. Um, inside the business, the classic wood decor and soft warm lighting has been kept nearly the same since its founding. 
patrons can enjoy beers and cocktails served by friendly bartenders. As one of the few as one of a few bars in the area, the business is important for people who want to socialize or catch up on sports. The business is committed to creating a sense of community and belonging in the neighborhood. Um, staff supports this application and recommends a resolution to add the Dubliner to the Legacy Business Registry. The second Legacy Business application we have is for Underglass Custom Framing, a 38-year-old custom picture framing shop and gallery space on Market Street between Noe and Sanchez in the Castro neighborhood. Underglass Custom Framing offers um, offers custom framing services to everyday residents, helping people frame and preserve significant life events. The business is honored to be framing the sash of the reigning Miss San Francisco, Monroe Lace. Miss Lace, among many other things, is the first transgender Miss San, Francis Miss San Francisco in history. The business also hires artists from within the community and a yearly framing allowance is provided to employees to get their personal art professionally framed and ready for exhibit. Their gallery space is a platform for emerging artists to, sh to host art shows. The business has also partnered with many nonprofit organizations to provide custom framing and donations for their events and fundraisers. Underglass Custom Framing is committed to safeguarding their museum conservation quality framing art shows and partnerships with nonprofit organizations. Staff supports this application and recommends a resolution to add underglass custom framing to the legacy, to the legacy business registry. Um, and I will pass this on to my colleague Lizzie who will present the next legacy business application. Good afternoon, Lizzie Mao, planning staff. The third legacy business application we have is for Delano Nursery, Inc., a 101-year-old producer of unique indoor plants. This nursery has been family-owned for three generations, and Delano Nursery, Inc. has a wholesale center at the San Francisco Flower Market, a wholesale nursery in Daly City, and an online shop. Delano Nursery does not believe in rare plant harvesting in a way that can damage or endanger species. When they can, they source compostable, non-plastic packaging and nursery supplies and strive to be ever more conscious of how they run their business. Whenever possible, they buy direct from small makers and source from established growers with whom they have worked for, with for years and who can vouch for their industry practices. The business is committing committed to maintaining their wholesale plant offerings, selection of rare plants, plant rentals, and eco-friendly practices. Staff supports this application and recommends a resolution to add Delano Nursery, Inc. to the Legacy Business Registry. My colleague, Dakota, will present next. Afternoon, commissioners, Dakota Speecher, department staff. I'm gonna be presenting the next two items. Uh, the fourth legacy business is Frascati Restaurant, a 37-year-old restaurant located at 1901 Hyde Street in the Russian Hill neighborhood. Founded in 1986 by two Italian immigrants, it got, it got its name from the Frascati region outside of Rome. Uh, and Frascati is also known as a dry or semi-sweet white wine. Originally thought to have been the Green Street Bakery in 1928, it was later used as a market called Top of the Hill sometime between 1940s and 1950s. In the 1970s, it was later changed to a pharmaceutical office, uh, which was preceded by an oak furniture business. 
Frascati's menu is inspired by its Italian roots, but takes influence from uh, French, Spanish, and Californian cuisine. Throughout the years, different ownership and the menus have changed significantly. However, they still utilize the best and freshest ingredients any season has to offer. Frascati's also makes and takes pride in their house-made dessert and ice creams. This tri-level restaurant features warm colors, high ceilings, antique light fixtures, and street views of cable cars traveling up and down Hyde Street. Frascati works, with, uh, works in partnership with the cable car operators and local hotel concierges to encourage continued patronage from guests around the world. Frascati donates to nonprofit organizations such as Swords to Plowshares, various schools, youth organizations, as well as actively serves as a member of the Russian Hill Neighbors. Staff supports this application and recommends a resolution to add Frascati to the Legacy Business Registry. This concludes my presentation on Frascati. Uh, so Dakota Speecher presenting again uh, on the next biz, uh, Legacy Business. Um, Adventure Cat Sailing Charters, a 32-year-old business that has offered the only large-scale private and public catamaran sailing tours of the San Francisco Bay. Founded in 1991, Adventure Cat operates on two custom-built uh, sailing catamarans, Adventure, one, uh, Adventure Cat 1 and Adventure Cat 2, hosting around 40,000 guests per year. Uh, uh, excuse me, 40,000 guests per year to visit San Francisco's most popular attractions like the Golden Gate Bridge and Alcatraz. Adventure Cat 1 was hand-built by founders Jay Gardner, Pam Simpson, and Hans Crofin, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, and after around 10,000 hour, uh, person hours and a full US Coast Guard certification, uh, Adventure Cat 1 kicked off operation out of Pier 40, however, has moved, uh, moved in 1997 to Pier 39. Um, because of the constant winds, these catamarans spend 95% of the time sailing under uh, wind power alone. In 2015, Hans retired from Adventure Cat's uh, sailing charters. However, the business is still run and operated by Jay and Pam to this day and conti continues to offer tours of the bay. Its commitment to the community dem is demonstrated through its ticket donations to nonprofit schools and individuals, uh, as well as individual communities in all nine uh, Bay Area counties. Adventure Cat also hosts community groups, school field trips, and campgrounds for discounted rates on private entertainment and educational events. Uh, staff supports this application and recommends a resolution to add Adventure Cat sailing charters to the Legacy Business Registry. This concludes my presentations. I'm available for any questions, and I will now hand it off to Manushi. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Manushi Mathur, Department Staff, presenting two legacy business cases to you today. The next legacy business is Ellie and Eva Company. Ellie and Eva Company was established by spouses Louise and Kenneth Leong, both immigrants from China in 1970. As a small family-owned mini emporium and music store, Ellie and Eva Company have been selling wide, a wide range of local and imported Chinese goods for over half a century at its Jackson Street location and has served San Francisco for 53 years. Ellie and Eva Company is currently the 
only music, uh, musical instrument store in Chinatown, providing a convenient location for families to purchase Chinese musical instruments for their children. It is also a store where musicians can access the most traditional Chinese instruments to continue their musical heritage. The company also offers free tuning, stringing, and repair services for violins used by students. <clears throat> Ellie and Eva Company is an immigrant and minority-owned business. They are one of the original vendors of the legendary SF Chinatown Chinese New Year Flower Mart and Community Fair, and the family has been selling their traditional colorful pinwheels and lucky jade charms during the sidewalk festivities since 1987. The company is committed to the Chinese community and demonstrates this by importing product, products that help to pass on Chinese traditions and culture to the new generations. The, the department is very supportive of this application and supports a resolution recommending Ellie and Eva Company to the Legacy Business Registry. The second legacy business is Enclosures International Corporation. Enclosures International Corporation was established in November 1977 by, by the current owner, Bill Perez, as a cartage and creating company focused primarily on handling valuable items. Bill learned the skill of creating from his father, William Lopez Perez, who founded the precursor to Enclosures International True Pack in 1967. It is currently housed in the American Can Company Southern Extension Building, which was included in the Central Waterfront Survey in 2001, and is a contributor to the California Register eligible Third Street Industrial District. Enclosures International participates in delivering clients' property to show in the annual San Francisco Fall Show, a leading international art, antiques, and design fair on the West Coast. Founded in 1981, the show features an extraordinary range of fine and decorative arts representing all styles and periods, including paintings, furniture, precious metal, ceramics, jewelry, rugs, works on paper, and ethnographic art. Enclosures International's clients list includes Ed Hardy, interior designer, P Peter Falk, actor Bernard Osher, philanthropist, <clears throat> Anne Getty, philanthropist, publisher, paleoanthropologist, and socialite, um, and football players with the San Francisco 49ers. Enclosures is a minority-owned business and has supported art students from Holy Angels School in Colma, the Girls and Boys Club, of San Francisco, the Salation Boys and Girls Club, and Glide Memorial Church. The, departments is very, the department is very supportive of this application and supports a resolution recommending Enclosures International Corporation to the Legacy Business Registry. This concludes the staff presentations, and we are ready for public comment. Thank you. Very good. With that, we should open up public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on any of these legacy business registry applications. If you're in the chambers, please come forward and you can line up on the screen side of the room or to your right. And if you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Come on up, ma'am. Yeah, come on up. You can be the okay. first one. I just wanted to quickly, oh, I'm sorry. I'm Rebecca Rader from Frascati Restaurant. I'm one of the owners with my husband. And I just wanted to say thank you to everybody, not only for considering our restaurant, 
but for everybody involved in this program, I think San Francisco really needs this right now. This is fantastic. We couldn't use not just our restaurant, the city, all of the other businesses. We need positive advertisement, and this is it. So thank you for creating it. Hi, uh, I'm here to support Ellie and Eva Company becoming a legacy business. Um, I learned that Ellie and Eva Company has a long-standing history of bringing uh, commu the community together by providing products and services typically not found. Uh, today, Ellie and Eva continues to trend by providing musical instruments such as the Erhuo and uh, Yang Jin and others. Um, and continues their legacy of bringing the community together locally and from afar. Uh, again, uh, in conclusion, I support Ellen Eva becoming a legacy business. Thank you. Hello, good afternoon. My name is Lillian, and I'm speaking on behalf of the Leung family for Ela and Eva Company. And thank you very much for the presentation. That cuts off half of my uh, sheet here. Um, but uh, I want to share that I'm, I'm also born in the Chinese hospital, uh, native of San Franciscan, and childhood was spent at the shop uh, throughout my childhood. I witnessed the, um, the happiness, the laughter that was happening at the shop when I was growing up. Uh, I saw the the worries, the struggles, and the fear as it comes. Uh, but throughout the whole time, my parents, Louise and Kenneth, they really, th their unwavered dedication really um, persevered throughout the years and kept the doors open. Uh, we lost Louise in 2001. My father alone uh, kept the doors open. Um, and in 2013, he found his new partner, which is my brother, Alan Leong, who's the new owner. They're doing, um, musical instruments now and every time I go visit the shops it's amazing how when someone wants to say can I try the instrument once the music goes out to the street a crowd forms so I like to continue to see that happening for the shop um, it would be honored for my dad to be recognized for his achievement and it would be a great support if my brother can receive some kind of assistance to help us through these tough times and maybe he can also work until he's 93, because my dad's 93. So it will be wonderful to see. So please support Ely and Eva Company. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Rose Chung, and I am also a native of uh, Chinatown. I'm here to speak in support of Ellie and Eva Company. Uh, growing up um, in the 60s and 70s, life was simple. My life was very sheltered. And when um, the Ellie and Eva Company would sponsor movie stars to come to the Chinatown theaters and perform, that was the highlight of our life, to be able to see those movie stars and such. So today, when I walk by their shop, I always like to chat with Alan to talk about the great memories we have of the older movie stars and such like that. So Ellie and Eva Company really is a treasure of Chinatown, and so that's why I support it, and thank you very much. Hello, my name is Ethan Glover. I'm a mixed Chinese American, and I'd like to voice my support for the Ellie and Eva Company 
uh, for its inclusion in the legacy business registry. Um, I've seen that it has a long history of sale of traditional string instruments, which is, I think is very important to preservation of the Chinese community in the area. And it has shown consistent support for community events, uh, such as community operas and musical concerts uh, in the Chinatown area. And I think inclusion of this business in the, in the registry will ensure that this historical location and its products will continue to be sold and continue to operate for years to come. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Eric Funk. I'm one of the owners of Underglass Custom Framing. Um, I'd like to thank the commission for considering us to become uh, a San Francisco legacy business. I'd also like to thank Rick and the whole team at the Legacy Business Program for their help and guidance through this process. They made it really easy for us. That was nice. We worked together really nicely. Uh, my partner, Matthias Brandt, and I learned very quickly after acquiring Underglass nearly 18 years ago that it wasn't just a retail business or a service business or a tradesman's business or an art business. It was really all of those things. And um, shortly thereafter, we learned that it was more than even a business. Um, it's a destination for people to come to to commemorate almost every significant event that you can imagine, some that I hadn't even thought of before uh, in a person's life. So you know, a birth, a graduation, a wedding, a vacation. And people entrust us with these things, priceless art or their kids' art, um, family heirlooms, or just things they find on the street oftentimes. It's a great place to work. Uh, we get to hear all the stories behind these objects. It just comes pouring out of people when they come in. Um, and uh, it isn't unusual for us to really, and this is true, that we refrain the same art for two different generations. People bring it back in. My mom gave me this. You guys framed it. Not really my taste. Can we reframe it? So um, we do have a little bit of a legacy thing going on there as well. We're the third owners of Underglass. Uh, all three owners have been LGBTQ. Um, we take a great pride in that and also in serving the residents of the Castro District and wider San Francisco residents as well. It's a great honor to be the stewards of Underglass for the last 18 of the 38 years. And we looked forward to many, many more to come. Thank you for considering us. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Frank Skillman. I'm an artist, musician, and published author. And I'm here to uh, express a few words in support of Ellie and Eva company becoming a legacy business. I was introduced to Ellie and Eva company in the mid 80s, looking for gifts in Chinatown. Since then, I've been a regular customer for strings, picks, uh, sometimes just for conversation, maybe play some bass, bend some notes on a guzheng. The place is eclectic. It's a business that truly expresses the unique character of San Francisco.
When friends come from out of town, I take them up there. It's a, they love the place, Real, truly unique. Everything from traditional Chinese musical instruments to rock star signed electric guitars. They are the only music store in Chinatown. The only one like it in the world. I support Ali and Eva becoming a legacy business. Thank you. Okay, last call for public comment on this matter, or on these items, I should say. Seeing no additional requests to speak, commissioners, public comment is closed, and these legacy business registry applications are now before you. Thank you. Any of our young interns interested in expressing their public comment about the legacy businesses that we've heard today? not. Okay, commissioners. Commissioner Nagas Warren. Um, I, I just wanted to ask, you know, staff, where, how, how do these uh, businesses come to us? Um, and how do we, um, you know, do we do outreach to the communities to get um, them to apply for these, or does it come directly through the supervisors? Um, I, uh, I'm just so always so impressed with the variety and also the background of these businesses and hearing from, you know, the Ellie and Eva company, um, you know, supporters and Under Glass and um, the other uh, legacy businesses that were presented today are, are just an exceptional variety of, um, of this. And I think for Scotty's um, owner had said it well, that it really helps, you know, put the word out there. And I, we just enjoy the stories of all of this. And I recommended to some um, people the other day, like, oh, look at the legacy business registry so you can see all these different places in San Francisco. And I, I could remember, oh, there's that wonderful deli and the sunset. Or, and, and I think people get excited about it. So I'm really glad for that. So I'd love to hear where you get, where you get these nominations. Good afternoon, commissioners. Richard Carrillo with the Legacy Business Program, the Office of Small Business. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to hear all these applications today. Um, from my, first I'm going to talk about my personal perspective, then I'll go a little bit bigger to the Office of Small Business. Um, I don't do any outreach because I've always had a queue in the seven years that I've been doing this, so I'm just happy to be looking at applications that come to me. Um, but I know that the um, Office of Small Business they do um, weekly walks through different neighborhoods and they talk to business owners about the Legacy Business Program. Um, you know, Katie Tang's our director and she's on those walks and makes sure that she's letting the older businesses know about the program. Um, then we have uh, just everybody, like the commissioners on the Historic Preservation Commission, on the Small Business Commission telling businesses about the program. We have a lot of um, supervisors who um, are talking to their businesses in their district. And then we have a lot of community groups that, that do that outreach as well. So it's really coming from a lot of different places. And then sometimes from the businesses themselves, they'll read about it in the news. The press has been 
very positive, and I, I wanted to let you know everyone know and the press know that I appreciate their all their great articles about the program. But I think a lot of businesses see that too. So yeah, so a lot of other people aside from me are talking to businesses about um, the the registry. So just thank you so much for asking. It's great, and I uh, I can just imagine the abundance of stories in all these different communities, and I'm just thinking, oh, how do we get them to want to apply for this? And yeah, there are, um, you know, uh, I see a business that's really special to me personally. Um, I do let them know about the program, and I think a lot of people do that. So um, the word definitely spreads from, from person to person and gets out there, and so I'm glad to see that um, we have a continual interest in the, in the registry, which is great. Thank you. Commissioner Wright? Um, yeah, I, I, I want to follow that oh, up I'm by sorry. kind of expressing. Yeah, um, Elena Moore, planning staff. I just had one more thing to add to um, Commissioner Nagaswaran's question, um, that as part of SF survey, we also have um, a new flyer that we've designed that advertises the legacy business program. It has information about how to apply to the program as well as a QR code. And so as we're out in the field, doing field work, um, if we're talking to business owners and we're learning that they're approaching the 30-year deadline, then we can hand out the flyer to them. So just yesterday, we were in the inner sunset doing field work, um, and we, we were around Irving and 9th, and we stopped in at Arizmendi. We heard that they were around the 25-year mark, so we talked to um, some of the workers and owners um, and gave them the handout. We also stopped at um, I don't have the name, but that drugstore right on the corner of Irving and 9th, they've been around since the 30s. The Rexall um, sign. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we handed them the fly out, um, or the flyer, and yep. Yeah, so I just wanted to add, the, add that about our outreach. Thank you. That's good. I got a cookie at Arismendi the other day. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Wright. Oh, that's, that's great. Um, yeah, I actually think it would be really interesting for, if you could forward like the flyer to the commission. Um, you know, maybe we can spread it around too. And um, I'm just interested in seeing it. Um, but I want to follow um, Commissioner Nagaswaran's comments. Um, yeah, I'm always in awe and amazed at um, the the different types of businesses, the variety, um, and the stories. Uh, you know, we. You, you learn so much um, about uh, the various communities, uh, and, and it's very clear that uh, these businesses are kind of the backbone of the community and um, of the neighborhoods they serve. Um, I mean, I took a lot of notes, uh, but uh, you know, I, I could go down the list. It's just um, you know, one after the other. Uh, it, it, it's just so clear that uh, you know these businesses are providing um, um, a lot for the community. Uh, some are um, you know donating tickets, um, uh, providing free tuning. Uh, I'm definitely need to go into the um, the Ellie and Eva uh, business now uh, that I know about it and. Uh, uh, I have a whole stack of, of things that uh, need framed, <laughs> and, I, and I actually live near you, so um, <laughs> I have no excuse anymore to defer my my framing. Uh, uh, the the restaurants uh, just 
all of the stories, it's, it's really amazing. And, and I applaud all of you for going through the, the process to apply and, and uh, you know, showing your interest. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Vergara? Thank you. I just wanted to say it's, it's really wonderful to hear the, uh, the pride that you all take in your businesses. And uh, it's a reminder of the, uh, the richness of our city. And it's, uh, it's really a lot of fun to hear these stories. Am I allowed to ask a question? Yes, uh, you are. For Mr. Yeah. Funk, how, do you, how did you find out about Scott? It's interesting. The, the founder of your business, all you have is a first name. All we have is a first name. Yeah. So we bought the uh, business from Lynn Chichetti and we're still in contact with her. She actually moved to Provincetown, opened a store there called Under Glass, and she's still framing. Mm -hmm. um, and she just could not remember his last okay. name yeah. and we searched and searched and yeah. we couldn't find anything and rick was really helped us yeah. we actually couldn't even find tax records from our own tax records before i think 2010 so the staff said you know go to the library look up the phone directory so yeah. we did all that so thanks again guys for that i appreciate that so that's as far as we got we yeah. just knew from him and the old landlord that his first name was Scott, God, that was it. Fascinating, yeah. Yeah. interesting. And he opened it originally in his in Burl Heights in his, in his garage. In his garage. In his home. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you, yeah, thank you. So you obviously did a lot of work to to research this application. Sure. Yeah, and I'm sure everybody else did too. Yeah, so, of yeah. course. I just yeah. want to say the, how I learned about it is um, down the street. There's a clothing store. It's been there forever as well, called Rolo. Yeah. And I saw they had a plaque. The, the, the plaque. Yeah. Yeah, I saw yeah. the plaque, and I was like, oh, what is that? And that led me to research a little bit and that's how I came about knowing about it nice thank you for example thanks thanks thank you we, we um, always look forward to hearing about the legacy businesses in the city and I think we have a great group and great variety of legacy businesses uh, before us today and I think that I just speak for the Commission in thanking you for um, sticking it out having a small business and managing a small business particularly during COVID and surviving COVID is probably one of the most challenging uh, things that we've seen and we've heard from a lot of the legacy businesses. But thank you for being here for us, being a part of our city and, and, and bringing that uniqueness that San Francisco offers that I think no other city in our country offers. Um, going, pivoting from a dry goods store to a musician's magic box, that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> Uh, all of the businesses that we have um, been informed of today are, are definitely to be commended. And I also want, uh, and I think we should always thank our um, liaison, Rick Grillo, for all of his hard work. Um, it's not easy being patient and um, offering the level of assistance that he gives to all of the applicants who come before him to uh, apply to be a small a legacy small business. It's um, he makes I think the process the bureaucratic process the city process a lot easier for anyone and everyone to understand. So thank you Rick for continuing to to be there for all of us. Um, so with that I think uh, we're ready to entertain a motion. Motion to approve. Second. Thank you commissioners on that motion then to adopt a recommendation for approval, Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Nagaswarn? Yes. And Commission President Matsuda? Yes. So moved, Commissioners, that motion passes unanimously four to zero. Congratulations. Indeed.
commissioners, that'll place us on item six for case number 2019-004772, COA for the property at 3250 through 3270 18th Street. Uh, good afternoon, commissioners. Monica Giacomucci, planning staff. The application before you today is a request for a certificate of appropriateness for the property at 3250 through 3270 18th Street with 3250 18th Street at designated as landmark number 139, the St. Charles School under Article 10 of the Planning Code and located within an RH3 zoning district. The property is improved with a two-story wood-framed school building constructed in 1888 in the Italianate style by architect Charles J.I. Delvin during his first year working as the chief architect of the Archdiocese of San Francisco. It was originally used as a church for the St. Charles Borromeo Parish, but came into use as a school as early as 1895. It is believed to be one of the only remaining wood frame school buildings in San Francisco. In 2019, La Scuola International School began occupying this and one other property located at 741 South Van Ness that was associated with the church complex to serve as a campus for kindergarten through eighth grade students. Um, and representatives from La Scuola are here today and I will certainly allow them to elaborate more on their history um, as well as this project and the overall development of the campus around the 18th Street and South Van Ness intersection. The proposal before you today would not substantially alter the St. Charles School Building, but would merge the two lots, demolish three existing portable classrooms on the site, and construct a new four-story, 20,370-square-foot school building and rehabilitate and expand the existing play yard. The new building would reserve space for a mural on its west wall, and St. Charles would be improved with new safety lighting, but otherwise would remain largely untouched as part of this project because portions of the new building and play yard will encroach onto the larger lot, um, which is the one that contains St. Charles School uh, and carries the landmark designation, the project does require review by this commission. So in other words, you may be wondering <laughs> why we are reviewing a project that doesn't really impact a landmark so much, um, and that's why. On February 5th, 2020, the Architectural Review Committee, or ARC, reviewed the project. The notes from the ARC meeting should have been included in your staff report for this week. Um, and the project has been revised in the following ways in response to the comments that um, were put forward by the ARC. First, in addition to the current scopes of work, the proposal previously included a footbridge connecting the new building to St. Charles School, and that was fully eliminated from the project scope. Um, also, a new circulation core at the rear of the landmark building um, was proposed previously and has been eliminated. And finally, the fenestration pattern of the east facade of the new building, which is the one that sort of faces St. Charles School, um, was regularized to be more compatible with the fenestration pattern of St. Charles. Um, in addition to the certificate of appropriateness being sought today, the project will also require a conditional use authorization of a planned unit development from the Planning Commission in order to expand the school use in a residential district and modify planning code requirements for bicycle parking and rear yards. Since the staff report was uh, published last week, the department have, has received 105 letters of support for the proposed project and no letters in opposition over the four years that we've been reviewing it. 
the La Scuola team has conducted extensive community outreach to inform neighbors and the broader mission community about the project and its changes over the past several years. La Scuola has hosted multiple meetings within the community, including in February and August of 2019, and again in March of this year. Likewise, the project sponsor team has hosted meetings and maintained ongoing communication with representatives from local community groups, including United to Save the Mission and Calle 24 Latino Cultural District. In addition to meetings, the sponsor is in regular voluntary communication with adjacent re residential neighbors to notify them of school events, maintenance and repairs, daily operations, and any other school events relevant to adjacent properties. Given the light touch on the landmark building and contemporary but compatible design of the new school building, staff has determined that the proposed work will be in conformance with the requirements outlined in Article 10 of the Planning Code and the Secretary of the Interior Standards, and we are therefore recommending approval with the following conditions. First, that the school shall provide to Planning Department staff product information for the proposed outdoor lighting system, including but not limited to methods of attachment prior to issuance, permit issuance, I'm sorry. And second, that the sponsor shall update planning department staff regarding the proposed mural, including artist information, subject matter, and final location prior to permit is issuance. The mural may be applied without requiring any additional entitlements from this commission. And this concludes my presentation. As I said, this project sponsor team is here and is happy to make a short presentation, and we can answer any questions you have. Thank you. And I'm just going to provide a little tech support, so one minute. Oh, never mind. Great. <laughs> Okay, project sponsor, you have five minutes. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Danny Solberger. I'm the chief operating officer at La Escuela International School. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share a little bit about our school. Uh, La Escuela was founded 20 years ago by a group of Italian and Italian-American parents who wanted to reconnect with their heritage and with the language. We've grown to a thriving preschool through grade eight program. Uh, we are, our primary approach is the Reggio Emilia philosophy, which has a large focus on building relationships, community, and the learning environment. If you're in Reggio, you quickly hear that the, they look at the environment as the third teacher. So there's a deep connection between architecture, design, and the pedagogy that we teach our students, uh, especially when the spaces are built for children and their learning. Next slide, please. We're a diverse community. We have over 30 languages spoken in the families of our homes. We offer an Italian immersion program, as well as we're one of the first independent schools to offer a Spanish track differentiated for native Spanish-speaking students, very different than those are first being introduced to the language. And we also offer a global international baccalaureate education. You'll see one of the founding principles uh, in Reggio is accessibility, making the education available. Um, and we are deeply committed and invested in our sliding scale tuition, uh, which 30% of our families currently rely on. Next slide, please. We are active within our community, both locally and globally. Uh, we collaborate on safety issues with many other schools in the Mission District, both through SFUSD as well as other independent schools. Uh, currently, I think that the number is around eight. And uh, we also are in active conversations with neighborhood and community organizations. Uh, as Monica mentioned, one of the pieces of collaboration was uh, incorporating a very prominent mural um, after conversations uh, and at the suggestion of one of the community groups. 
Uh, we look at this new building as not only a home for our students, but as a resource for the community and intend to open it, the facilities for events, lectures, playground access, garden, et cetera. Next slide, please. Uh, we found our home in the Mission District back in 2018, which seems like eons ago, and we specifically chose our location in the Mission District for the vibrant cultural heritage and background that it shares. It's very near and dear to our heart, especially the Italians among us. At the time, we moved very quickly with design and planning until the pandemic forced us to freeze our efforts. And here we are four years later, at long last, very excited to be here with you and moving forward with momentum with this project. With that, I'd like to introduce you to Emily Gossack, principal at Jensen Architects, to tell you a little bit more about our partners and the project. Thank you so much. Good afternoon, commissioners. Emily Gossack, principal at Jensen Architects. We're the local architect of record working on the project in collaboration with La Scuola and also with ZPZ partners from Italy who bring the expertise in the Reggio approach to architecture. So collectively, we're all together uh, committed to building a project of the highest quality in the Mission neighborhood. Um, I, so the, the project will allow the school to expand its enrollment with nine new classrooms, uh, um, significantly larger um, building capacity, as well as a um, new renovated play yard and some play spaces and teaching outdoor teaching spaces on the building itself. We also are proposing no new car parking, but 50 additional bike parking spaces. In general, the project allows the school to continue to be a safe, welcoming, and active presence in the mission, both on Shotwell with the active streets, um, sidewalks there, and on 18th as well. You can skip to the next slide. So you see in the um, aerial there, you see the St. Charles building on the lower right corner uh, at the corner of 18th and Shotwell, the existing play yard that spans from 18th all the way up to Shotwell, and the existing portable classrooms clustered at the north, which as Monica mentioned, will be removed as part of the project. This is the proposed site plan. The new building is anchoring that lower left corner, balancing the St. Charles building, and the renovated play yard does create that gap between the two buildings and extends all the way up to Shotwell. The existing white zones will be the sort of um, uh, pick up and drop off spaces which the school currently uses. And this is just an aerial to reiterate what Monica already said. Although the project originally proposed substantial changes to St. Charles, it no longer does so. Uh, a couple of highlights from the work that we did with the planning department to date, articulating the, the, the primary facade with three zones that echo the three zones of the St. Charles building, lower, middle, and upper, um, and with deeper sunshades at the upper level, echoing the cornice on the St. Charles building. And then on the east facade, this is the fenestration pattern that Monica mentioned. Next slide. And the way that those windows are directly derived from the St. Charles windows. This is the material palette for the new building, and I'll just show you a couple more details and then I can conclude. Um, these are the light fixtures that Monica mentioned. We're proposing to add or actually replace the existing security lighting that is on the St. Charles building with surface-mounted surface fixtures that would be located just below the um, wood trim that you see on the right-hand side. And then the next slide. Uh, we're also proposing to replace the existing uh, steel fence with one that has added security features because the school has experienced some security issues in the play yard and that's a primary concern and something we want to address with this project. Uh, the building is below the height limit and this just shows you the plan a little bit. The primary entrance is on 18th. You ramp down to the play yard and connect to St. Charles on the right or through the dining area out to the backyard. 
there's offices on the second floor and then the upper two levels are classrooms and the uppermost level, the roof, contains those additional play yard spaces that I mentioned. And these are just a couple slides to reiterate the way that the design relates to the urban design guidelines. These are um, features that I already mentioned, but you see the sunshades there on the south facade uh, on the left-hand side. The detail of the facades both on the south and the east relates to this goal of rendering depth and texture in the, um, in the building overall. And then I think maybe most importantly, the sense of eyes on the street and transparency and activation that the design of this building brings to 18th Street to really create that sense of presence on 18th, which is so important. Thank you for your time and consideration and we're free to answer questions. Okay, with that, we should take public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Come on up, sir. Good afternoon, Madam President, commissioners. My name is Mauricio Chavez. I'm the organizer for the Carpenters Local Union 22 here in San Francisco. I was chosen to represent the 3,000 plus union members here that work in the city and county, as well as the 37,000 members we have represented here in Northern California. Although San Francisco faces the housing crisis, as does much of the state, uh, we believe, we love building housing as much as the next organization. However, we believe that building this new building for the school would be a giant step for the education of San Francisco's youngest and brightest minds. And we vehemently support this project. We also believe that all working people have a right to a job with good benefits, a living wage that can support a family, security and dignity in work and retirement, a safe and secure workplace, education and training to reach our full potential through an accredited apprenticeship. However, with rights come responsibilities, being productive, efficient workers, producing work of the highest quality, work that we stand behind, improving our communities, helping fellow workers, unionized and non-unionized, achieve safety and security in the workplace, and being active citizens and informed voters. We've had conversations about getting their cabinets built here in our union shops, given how they feel that the environment is the third teacher and we look forward to that partnership moving forward. So again, we vehemently support this project. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, my name is Rebecca Perez. I am a assistant preschool teacher at La Scola. I uh, currently work at the Dog Patch campus that we have. Um, so I am actually a former family from a student that used to attend La Scola, and that is my younger brother. He is alumni at La Scola, and um, the experience that we had with, you know, with La Scola and the, the La Scola team, um, we've had a lot of good benefits from it. It's the first time for us experiencing, you know, an Italian culture as well. My, my parents were definitely amazed by the culture that they represented, and um, I do come from a Latino family. Um, so, and uh, luckily they, they, they offered me a job there and, you know, um, it's really interesting to me to learn this, uh, you know, this different type of education. Um, it was the first time to learn about Reggio Approach. 
Um, and I think, you know, most of our children at La Scuola love to see the environment as a third teacher. Um, the aesthetic that we have, the, the materials that we provide our students uh, really helps develop their, their growth development. And, um, you know, having this, uh, you know, this uh, new building that for La Scuola will definitely benefit our children and, um, you know, and our staff as well. So thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you for considering this. My name is Marsan Weiss. I'm a parent at La Escuela. I've been there for nine years. Um, one of my, well, not me, my child has. And I'm also a board member. And I've been a board member for about a year. And one of the things that I have noticed, both as a parent as well as a board member, is the growth and uh, that La Escuela has done as a community, both within the school, but also within the mission. And since 2019, I have seen the administration as well as the board meet numerous times with their architectural teams, as well as with the city, in order to ensure that the accuracy of the design of this building is met. Um, it amazed me when I was on the board every month to hear how the board members, the architect team, as well as the contractors met. It's not once a week, but it's generally two to three times a week and the detail that they go over. So as a parent, I'm thrilled. As a board member, I'm amazed. And so in looking at this, just to um, follow up with all the other design that you heard, um, the level of detail, the children, um, seeing all of the presentations, you saw one, I've seen maybe 10 of them over the last four years. But the level of detail that we go into with regards to this new building, I think will help the mission. It will also help the children in their learning. So thank you for the consideration. Hi, Jeffrey Krause. I'm a parent of two children at La Scuola and a board member of La Scuola, like Marcin. I've been on the board for a year now, and it takes a lot of time to be on the board, and it is so worth it. The people involved with La Scuola, the people running La Scuola, the students at La Scuola, I would do anything for them. So it's, it's a privilege for me to be here in front of you. Um, I work on the board specifically to try to think about our legacy. Like Danny mentioned that the school is 20 years old, which is a young school, and I'm here to see it to the next 20 years and to beyond because I think what they do and what we do at the school is just so important and so good for the community and the people in the community. Um, the building is designed with the community in mind, as you've seen, and not just for events and to host people or to bring people in, it really is to be like a cornerstone for the community and to bring students in. This is not a school for you know, a certain part of the population. This is a school that is open for everybody. And we work on the board to raise lots of money from our, our other parents and other families so that we can support as many children as we possibly can in the school. I've lived in uh, San Francisco for over 20 years. I want to raise my family here. I love it here. I spend a lot of time trying to convince families not to leave the city and to stay here because this is such an important place and we love it here. Thank you very much. Uh, 
Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Freddie Daniels. I am a, um, a worker down at Local 22 um, Carpentry. Um, I just want to say I support the project because um, it helps workers like me, um, you know, be able to commute that much more easier. Um, I know a lot of the times the job sites are very, very far out and the commute is very difficult. So um, for that, I do support. So thank you. My name is Lewis Payne, Carpenters 20, Local 22. Um, I didn't realize this project was on 18th and South NS. See, now I got a story for you. Okay. Um, the elementary school I went to was Fairmont Elementary School, which was two blocks away from our house, which was nice because my mother was raising three kids, me and my two sisters. So it was in walking distance and it was safe. Anyway, after that, we moved to the 640 South NS, which is at 17th and South NS. And then all of a sudden, we got bus to Sir Francis Drake, Bayview. Everybody remember busing? Yeah, what a fiasco. I was victim of violence, harassment, discrimination, you name it. Anyway, had to drop out of school. So then I ended up on Potrero at a place called Central Latino, which was a freedom school. And their, their thing was making mosaics, not much of an education. Then I ended up at James Lick, which was a good school. They had shop. And then I went to Mission after that, which was all, you know, within the Mission District, mostly, you know. Then I ended up at Balboa. And I was on the rifle team. Um, ROTC, then I entered the Air Force. So, you know, having a school where the neighborhood can go to, which is accessible and safe, you know, I think is a big plus for an education. Because, you know, if I hadn't, you know, went back to school, I would end up doing I don't know what. But I ended up with the Carpenters Union four-year apprenticeship, had a good job, and I think this being a union job is an excellent opportunity, both for the city and the Carpenters Union. Thank you. Okay, seeing no additional members of the public in the chambers coming forward, let's go to our remote callers. This is Harlan Crystal. Um, I have two children at La Scuola right now, and actually a third one coming soon. Uh, I'm not a member of board or anything like that. I'm just a very, uh, you know, enthusiastic parent. Um, I would just say that, like, I'm supportive of this project, strongly supportive of this project. Um, as a, um, I will attest that, like, all the things they're saying about, like, the environment and the inter architecture as the third teacher, this is something that they talk about often in, 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 like, in class and when I talk to the teachers. They really do care deeply about those things. Um, as someone who lives in District 6, I would say, like, as a city, we've invested a lot in, like, housing in, like, in the southeast part of the city. And, like, I, I strongly believe that we should invest more in, like, schools and things for these families to, like, have our children stay close to home. Um, currently, I just really love being able to, like, bring my daughter to school close to my home and then go to work all, you know, not running all over the city. So I think, like, it'd be great to invest in a project like this in the same places where we're building housing in the city. Thank you. 
Mr. Tokstad. Okay, hi. Um, um, my name is Eric Tokstad, and I'm, I'm, I'd like to speak in support of the new proposed building. Um, I'm a parent of two children who have attended La Scuola since 2014, and I serve on the board as well since 2019, and I work on the facilities committee and the fundraising committee, so I'm intimately involved in this building and trying to get it built and trying to get it funded. I'm also a native San Franciscan, and I'm a sole proprietor architect in the Bay Area for over 40 years, and I'm also a homeowner in the Mission a couple of blocks away. So this project is very uh, near and dear to me from many levels. Um, the new building carefully incorporates architectural elements that show respect to the existing neighboring St. Charles building, as well as a response to the greater mission um, fabric in that it's a vibrant facade, it, it's, it's, um, it's colorful, um, but also as Emily pointed out, um, and proportionally respectful of the existing um, historic building. The new development will continue the momentum to revitalize the presence of the vibrant school as La Scuola grows. Um, and when St. Charles closed, we had a void in that neighborhood, and this is um, momentum that we need to continue to support and allow La Scuola to grow, as the other um, um, supporters have said. The new building is a beacon of progress, is what we think, um, an innovation, and that La Scuola, um, as, as the other speakers have said, is, is recognized as a leader in education, um, combining the, the International Baccalaureate, the language immersion, and the Reggio Emilia pedagogy. And supporting this project signifies all of our commitment to honoring the past, um, the St. Charles building, as well as embracing the future, which is um, a, a vibrant school at this location. Thank you for your attention, and, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, last call for public comment. Seeing no additional requests to speak, commissioners, public comment is closed, and this matter is now before you. Thank you. Commissioners? Commissioner Wright? Uh, yeah, I, I have one question. Um, in the drawing package, uh, I, I think I know the answer to this, but um, there is um, on G4.05 a uh, an image showing kind of the, the pink windows on the, the east elevation and a pink row of windows on the first elevation, the first floor of the St. Charles um, historic building. There's no work to the historic building. That's just kind of describing the um, um, proportion, right? Absolutely correct. Okay. Yep. And um, no, that, that's great. Thank okay. you so much. Uh, and I just have a couple other, you know, quick comments. Uh, you know, I kind of I'm really impressed by the stories um, that I'm hearing today, um, and uh, the um, the voice of support from uh, from everyone, uh, from parents, board members, uh, employees, uh, construction crew. Um, the whole team, so uh, I, you know, I, I think it, it says a lot. And uh, you know, in looking through um, the the drawing package submission, uh, you know, I, I it kind of at a high level, at least, um, you know, it, it really seems like a very nice, lovely, contemporary addition to um, the neighborhood and to the street. Uh, I don't see any um, any impacts really to the historic character of um, of the St. Charles School itself, um, the historic building. So um, 
Also, I think somebody mentioned that there are community open houses. Um, you know, it'd be great to attend one. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Nagas Warren. Um, so uh, I think it's been a while since the last ARC, um, and I don't think any of the current group here was on it. So uh, forgive me if there's some things that I asked that I don't know about. Um, uh, uh, and I, I appreciate that there, you know, that you applied some of the responses, like the um, removal of the footbridge and the circulation at the north of Landmark, and then address the fenestration on the east facade. Um, I wanted to ask uh, about the glazing on the front facade, street facing. Um, and my first impression was that being the south face, its exposure to the sun is like that in the west side would be the primary facades to be exposed. And it, it, it surprised me a little. I would have expected the, the east face to be the glazed side to defer to the, the you know, or see the historic building on, on that side. Um, uh, and I know you have your reasoning. Um, and the other aspect of glazing on the front facade is that it's so different from, from the rest of the buildings. And I wish I, I could see the larger scape of that street to understand scale and, and that. So um, the, the type of glazing and the coloration um, I think it in some ways distracts from the historical building. So I want to understand where that is coming from, if you can explain a little bit. Uh, well, I think on, just to speak generally to the overall building design, there is a strong desire to project a sense of openness and welcome to the street, um, transparency and also to, and also daylight. So uh, I know those are important pieces of the Reggio curriculum that um, that connection to nature, connection to the outdoors and daylight are very important. Um, so too is the element of play. Um, I'm not an expert in Reggio. In fact, um, this is my first exposure, but play and joy and fun are very important to the ideas. And so I know that the color and the color of the glazing in particular are meant to just display that and um, to incorporate that both for the children coming to school, but also for the public in general. So I think those, all of those elements, um, and if you looked at ZPZ's, the uh, Italian architect who are the specialists in Reggio, all of their work has a lot of these same elements. So that's really, I think when you see the building, those are the things that are coming through. Um, I think one of the things that's most exciting to me about that transparency is the ramp and the kind of vertical activation that you'll get. So when you pass by on the street looking into the building. I think you'll see a lot of the life of the school, and I think that will be a really lovely addition to the streetscape. Um, in terms of the overall fenestration and where the glazing is, I know that there is a sense of coming into the school and moving all the way through it and the daylight passing all the way through in that direction, and that's where in the inside of the building there's a lot of glass on the classrooms also, so that when you come in there's a sense of brightness and light and daylight mm -hmm. all the way through. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of how um, how the building was conceived. And I think the ability 
of the building in its design to address St. Charles in a way that's more maybe deferential, you could say, on that east facade by having the more punched openings that directly relate to that fenestration pattern is actually an advantage from a historic standpoint. Um, we put the glazing where we get this sense of transparency in the north-south direction on the east, it's a little bit more deferential. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's how I would kind of describe the overall approach. I'm not sure if that helps. No, it definitely helps. Um, and I think um, as far as uh, conditions um, for staff to, uh, you know, um, review materials, uh, I would probably cons also consider the glazing as, um, you know, whether when you're on the south facing, you're going to either make it darker or more reflective. So we want to make sure that it doesn't distract from that streetscape that the, the historic building is on. So I would be curious whether it's dark or shiny or reflective or that. And then what the, the colorations, the, the slats, I guess they, they are, right? Mm -hmm. um, what they're made out of and how reflective they are, uh, those types of things. So Okay. Yeah. Um, you want me to speak to that now? Sure, you can. Okay. Well, the, I think in terms of the darkness versus lightness, we would seek for as much transparency as possible. Obviously, the energy code governs that from um, in terms of the actual glazing specification. Um, the colors are spe very specific, La Squala colors, um, but in terms of the shininess of the paint, again, I, I think we would default to a very as matte as we could um, find. Mm -hmm. It is a painted aluminum louver um, in the current conception of what that is. Mm -hmm. um, and then as well as what is the material of the facades, uh, the, the solid facades? It's stucco. It's stucco with a very particular reveal pattern um, and the idea there is to create a sense of texture um, almost as though it's like um, assembled out of tiles or bricks or something like that. But really the goal is just to create, instead of having it feel very monolithic, to create a mm -hmm. sense of texture and variety that's a little bit more naturalistic. I do appreciate that because it's broken a little bit down, you know, where where the, the landmark is very detailed and has, you know, a human scale with, with the breakdown of the size of the windows and the um, belt courses and all of that, that you're doing it in a modern way. So I appreciate that. So, thank you. I just had a question, I guess, for staff about timing. Um, I see that the ARC reviewed this in 2020, and it's now 2023. Could you share a little bit about the time? Sure, of course. I think we all know what happened a month after ARC reviewed this project um, in March 2020. So I would say, and I would defer to these folks um, if they'd like to speak to schedule, but I would imagine that that was sort of the biggest impact on the timeline of this project. And in fact, it was um, formally on hold for quite a while in that period, but the design did not change substantially from sort of the revised version that we received after ARC during the on hold period. It kind of remained the same. Okay. So we as staff felt that it was appropriate not to kind of go through this process of returning to an ARC hearing when ultimately the project team really took those suggestions and revised the project accordingly. That was my question. Okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Any other comments or questions from the commission? Okay, do I hear a motion? Motion to approve. With conditions, right? With conditions. And I'll second. 
Thank you, commissioners. Seeing nothing further, there is a motion that has been seconded to approve this matter with conditions. On that motion, Commissioner Vergara? Commissioner Wright? Yes. Commissioner Nagasworn? Yes. And Commissioner President Matsuda? Yes. So move, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously four to zero and place us as items seven and eight have been continued on your final item on your agenda today. Number nine, case number 2020-010702, CWP for the Cultural District's informational presentation. Good afternoon, Miriam Chin, Planning Department staff. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, per your request, we're bringing you a briefing on the cultural districts. As you know, this is, uh, has been an essential component of our efforts to address racial and social equity. It's a vehicle to get closer to our communities, to understand their contributions to the city more explicitly, and um, a way to engage and understand their visions and expectations. Um, as you know, this is an interagency program that is led by the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. We work very closely in partnership with them. So what we're presenting to you today is an overview of the program. Uh, some of you might have not uh, been familiar with the Cultural Districts Program. This has been in place in the city. So uh, we have Grace Ji-Yung Lee from MoCD. Um, she's the Cultural Districts Program Manager. And on the planning side, we have Julia Samori, who's the manager for community development and engagement. So I um, hope this is an informative session for you, and uh, we can follow up with any more in-depth conversations as needed. Thanks, Miriam. Good afternoon, commissioners. I am Grace Jun Lee, along with can my colleague. Can you put the microphone closer? Oh. Thank you. Good afternoon. So I'm Grace Jun Lee, and along with my colleague Imani Pardu Bishop, who's in the pink there, we administer the Cultural Districts Program out of the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. So as Miriam mentioned, we're going to provide you a brief overview of the program and share how the city supports these cultural districts to preserve and celebrate their distinct heritages. Next slide, please. Um, the program was established by the Board of Supervisors in 2018 as a direct response to the rapid gentrification happening in San Francisco and the recognition that the city's rich diversity is a huge part of what makes San Francisco so special. The program formalizes a collaborative partnership between the city and communities and brings resources to stabilize groups at risk of displacement. It's a place-making and place-keeping initiative with a vision to preserve, strengthen, and promote cultural communities by supporting residents, legacy businesses, nonprofits, community arts, social practices, and traditions. And we are very lucky that in November of 2018, San Francisco voters passed Prop E by 75%, which provides a dedicated funding source for the cultural districts program out of a portion of the hotel tax revenue. Um, the program's founding legislation defines a cultural district as a designated geographic area that embodies a unique, uh, unique cultural heritage, meaning that these areas contain a concentration of cultural and historic assets, culturally significant enterprise, arts, services, and or businesses, and additionally, a significant, 
significant portion of people who reside there or people who spend time in that area are members of a specific cultural community or ethnic group. Um, there's a particular focus on cultural communities and ethnic groups that have been historically discriminated against, displaced, and oppressed. And as you can see on this map, we currently have 10 formally recognized cultural districts in San Francisco, and they are Japantown Cultural District, Calle 24 Latino Cultural District in the Mission, Soma Pilipinas Filipino Cultural District, the Transgender Cultural District in the Tenderloin, Leather and LGBTQ Cultural District in Soma, African American Arts and Cultural District in the Bayview, Castro LGBTQ Cultural District, American Indian Cultural District, also in the Mission, Sunset Chinese Cultural District, and uh, the Pacific Islander Cultural District in Visitation Valley. And I want to acknowledge that even though the program was formally established in 2018, we want to acknowledge that many of these groups um, have been doing important cultural heritage preservation and stabilization work well before um, the start of the program. Next slide, please. So cultural districts are supported in their efforts precisely because of how the program was designed and legislated. Each cultural district has an advisory board made up of members of the cultural community who provide leadership and guidance and set the vision for the district. The community is a huge part um, of the cultural district and they provide input and feedback on their needs and potential solutions. Day-to-day -day activities and making progress on the community's vision is carried out by dedicated staff. And also by legislative mandate, there's an interdepartmental steering committee that works with the district to achieve the shared vision. Um, the program is coordinated by the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development, and we work closely in collaboration with the Office of Economic and Workforce Development, the Arts Commission, and of course, San Francisco Planning, um, each department sharing resources and expertise in their respective fields to support the realization of the community's priorities. Next slide. This program aims to empower the community to determine their economic and cultural stabilization and preservation priorities. We really want to ensure that you know, it is the community's vision that we are supporting and not you know, doing a top-down directive. So just a sampling of the types of activities that some of our cultural districts are engaged in. Um, on the left there is a flyer for um, an an ongoing program put on by Calle 24 and the American Indian Cultural District called Calle Limpia Corazón Contento that activates a commercial corridor in the mission. A key part of this revitalization effort is to legitimize local street vendors and get them on the pathway to small business ownership. Many cultural districts, including the African American Arts and Cultural District, use arts and culture to activate public spaces in ways that celebrate their neighborhoods cultural community and highlight local artists. So that mural that you see in the top middle there um, is from the unveiling of a new mural in the Bayview in October 22 uh, by artist Malik Senefero, a Bayview Hunters Point native. Um, the middle bottom, cultural heritage preservation work is a priority for many districts, such as Japantown Cultural District, which has been collaborating with stakeholders to support the redevelopment of the Japantown Peace Plaza to make it a more functional and flexible gathering space for the community. And one of the ways that cultural districts increase cultural competency can be seen through Soma Pilipinas' work of strengthening and increasing 
linguistically appropriate services for Filipino residents in SOMA. So those are just a few of the ways that cultural districts are working as leaders, conveners, and uh, collaborators to strengthen their communities. And as part of their work, each cultural district is required to complete a cultural history, housing, and economic sustainability strategies report, or CHESS, um, a strategic plan that provides a road roadmap to community stabilization. Um, the report consists of two main pieces. One is a history and cultural legacy statement, which provides history and context of the cultural community in San Francisco. And the other is a set of strategies for community stabilization. Um, the stabilization strategies in the chess focus on six key policy areas. Um, I'm just going to read them out because I know I'm going a little long. So cultural competency, arts and culture, housing and tenant protections, economic and workforce development, land use, and cultural heritage preservation. And these strategies are developed through a robust community engagement process and with coordination from the city to ensure feasibility and alignment. Um, this collaborative process requires review and sign off on all the strategies by each of our steering committee departments. And as of today, I'm happy to report that two of uh, the cultural districts, Japantown and Soma Pilipinas, have completed their chess reports and they've been approved by the Board of Supervisors. And so now those two cultural districts are working to implement many of the strategies in those reports and we continue to work with the other cultural districts to get to that important milestone. And now I'm going to pass it along to Julia. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Julia Sabori, Community Engagement Manager at the Planning Department, um, and have the honor of working and coordinating with the Cultural District Program. So as planning um, is one of the four legislated members of the city steering committee, we focus our representation on streamlining resources and communication, policy support, and making sure that this placemaking approach that lifts up cultural presence and heritage is a shared language and a shared visionary goal for all of the departments. We work on uh, the CHESS report, which is also a legislative mandate. We provide data and content to MOCD, and we work on the city sections, um, primarily focusing on the planning department's section, where we highlight and author the major projects, area plans, and other initiatives that intersect with each cultural district. Um, before a CHESS is approved, we participate with the City Steering Committee in an iterative, um, lengthy process where we review the community strategies that are created out of a year, year and a half long engagement process facilitated by the Cultural District. And the four departments work hand in hand with the Cultural District to address feasibility of those community identified strategies and alignment with the department so that we can all work hand in hand to bring them to fruition. 
since transitioning myself, uh, transitioning from MoCD as the cultural district manager and landing at SF Planning, it has allowed me the opportunity to really further understand uh, first the racial and social equity action and resolution that was passed by the planning department and understand how the cultural district can synchronize and complement um, that effort. And so what we've done is created um, cultural district liaisons. And so we have a, a planning department staff person for each of the cultural districts. So they have somebody to call and ask questions to. Um, we, they, those liaisons focus on supporting any challenges, um, learning about the activities and events and activation that's happening in the cultural districts and support their chess report process. How we do that work internally is we've created an internal planning department cultural district tracker where any staff member can log on and within that cultural district they can log a project or a program or a long-term planning process that will intersect and impact that cultural district. That liaison then checks the tracker and that information is shared with the, their contact. This is a list of the cultural districts and the planning department liaisons. And I serve as the coordinator of um, this work. Next slide. And so I wanna briefly just go over um, some of the updates from each cultural district. And this is really the, the highlight of this presentation because it's their words and their photos directly to you because they couldn't be here today. Um, the, we just wrapped up a partnership with the American Indian Cultural District on a housing town hall, and that information and content with over 100 uh, community members present is going to inform their chess, inform the Friendship House's village project, as well as our work at the planning department around housing element implementation. The African American Arts and Cultural District is working to advance and cultivate, enrich, and advocate African American equity, cultural stability, vibrancy, and economic vitality in the Bayview. Calle 24 is very, very active, although it's not all listed on this slide. They uh, do one-on-one uh, -on -one small business support. Um, they have been activating with murals and art, and they have an event coming up on September 16th. Each cultural district maintains a website and events calendar, um, and so I would encourage you to check out all of their websites. The Sunset Chinese Cultural District, which is fairly new, is working on their chest. They're working to uplift the monolingual Chinese community voices through the implementation of the housing element. And they're in the midst of a mapping project and developing a sunset resource guide. Soma Filipinas is deep in their partnership with SF Planning, among many other things, and MoCD on chess housing implementation and advancing racial and social equity goals that align with the housing element. This is Castro LGBTQ Cultural District's new logo. And they uh, recently received uh, multiple grants from OEWD to do small business support. And when the pandemic hit, and a lot of these, these cultural districts couldn't gather, they couldn't do a lot of their events, um, they shifted over to direct resource and aid to the community, not just in rental assistance and small business support, but even um, entrepreneurial and other grant making and emergency services. 
The Leather Cultural District is very, very close to finishing their chess. They're unveiling a mural, installing new pole um, banners and flags. Um, they've been giving out fentanyl testing strips and they host monthly Second Saturday art and artisan fairs. Japantown um, is one of the two cultural districts that has an approved chess, so they're working on implementing those strategies. And our department is deep in partnership with working on the Japantown Osaka Way upgrades and improving accessibility. The transgender district um, has seven initiatives that they're working on um, and their entrepreneur accelerator program um, and their guaranteed income program have really taken flight. They are working global and local, and they really um, have done some amazing work leading um, a global movement. The Pacific Islander Cultural District is the most recent cultural district approved. Um, they are focused in, and on uh, their getting ready for their chess process. They recently secured the funding with MoCD and they are building the infrastructure with their community to further their work. So I'd like to thank you for your time and attention and we're here for any questions and our contact information is on the PowerPoint. Thank you. Thank you. Great, if that concludes your presentation, we should open up public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the Commission on this informational presentation. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no request to speak, Commissioners, public comment is closed. And this informational presentation is now before you. Thank you. Commissioners? Commissioner Nagas Warren. So um, I wanted to ask, um, this is sort of a naive question, but what, how do, if, if, if a group, there's a, there's a kind of contingent or a group outside of their geographic cultural district, do they have representation in, in that, in that cultural district? So I think what you're asking is, so for example, I think a good example is the American Indian Cultural District. So there is a defined geographic area um, that's in the legislation and the work that they do, and that area was chosen in the mission because there is a lot of rich history and cult, um, cultural heritage um, that is in the mission. And the work that they do, while they're geographically located, there is you know work kind of across um, you know, across San Francisco, ensuring that the um, indigenous Native American voices are heard and included in the process. And so when they do community engagement, yes, they often go beyond their geographic boundaries. Does that uh, answer Yeah, that, that's um, exactly what I was talking about. And, you know, I think also the Chinese community, there's, uh, you know, pockets in different places. And, yeah, so. Absolutely. There yeah. is always outreach being done beyond the borders. Um, and I think the geographic boundaries help kind of set a foundation for the work that they're doing. But, yeah. of course, there's going to be a lot of, um, you know, crossing the borders. Okay. Just to add, like, for example, in the case of the housing plan, the housing element, the cultural district, the American Indian community is a foundation, but their issues are citywide. 
And so they will convey those perspectives and it's not just for an investment. But as Grace was saying, um, having a physical anchor helps us identify where some of the targeted investments, but in many ways, and the program is very specific as, as Grace and Julia described, but they also help us as a platform to understand those communities throughout. Right, right. Um, and then another question is, um, I, I think there was some information on this, but I wanted to understand it a little bit better. How, how does a cultural district, how is a cultural district engaged in relation to projects within that district? Let's say there's, you know, projects that come before us or the planning commission. Um, are they, are, are, you know, is the planner moving towards the cultural district or is the cultural district notified and they come to, you know, the planning department or other entities? Yeah, that's, that's part of what um, Julia has been building within the department. So having a liaison within the planning department for each cultural district will help the planners that are dealing with any projects that you might be getting, that the planning commission might be getting, to coordinate with the cultural district. So there's a vehicle of information that goes both ways. Similarly, if anybody in the cultural district wants to know if there's a project or not, um, then the information goes directly to the planner who can scan the properties to see or, or the are parcel. They, are they notified of the projects that are coming to the department and then going to the cultural district? Yeah. That was, your, oh, yeah. Commissioner, sorry. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll chime in on this a little bit since I think a lot of the work in my former role as Southeast team leader, we did a lot of outreach with the cultural districts, particularly as related to development projects. And yes, Julia and Miriam and, and their team are building out a larger network for planning. Obviously we have 200 plus people with 90 projects across the whole city. Um, we do recognize that you know some of the districts actually have are very concerned about land use um, within their areas. Calle 24 is one of them. Soma Pilipinas, for example, is one of them. So our staff are kind of in tuned with regularly going out and outreaching with those groups and making sure that they both understand the project that is occurring in their district and then they have an opportunity to kind of voice it directly with the developer or the applicant. Um, all of the cultural districts are part of our public notification procedures. So anytime we have a hearing notification, they're part of the groups um, that get regularly notified about HPC or planning commission, for example. Um, and then my last question is, you know, you had described cultural districts as uh, geographic areas with vulnerable populations that are susceptible to gentrification and that. Um, is there a cultural district within the Tenderloin? And what are, what are, are maybe multiple? Um, the transgender cultural district is located in the Tenderloin. And while, you know, each of the cultural districts has, you know, a focus on a distinct cultural group or ethnic community. A lot of the work that they do, um, I think helps lift up many like vulnerable populations within that area. For example, if they're offering, you know, like COVID health services, it's not just for a particular population, although that is, a, you know, the general focus of the cultural district. It really is to um, lift up empower um, those that have been 
marginalized or who could use that extra support. And they were the community that was offering t fentanyl testing or something That was like a that. leather and LGBTQ. Oh, leather and LGBTQ. Um, district, okay. But the Castro L and LGBTQ cultural district um, throughout COVID was offering COVID test sites. Okay. Well, I know that the Tenderloin has also a lot of, you know, drug activity and kind of vulnerable populations there for that as well. So I'm just curious about that. I, I just wanted to add, I think um, all of our department's approach is to, in a tender partnership model fashion, allow the community, the cultural community to lead. And so on the one hand, we have a lot of work that we want to share with the cultural districts, but we also have to be uh, and acknowledge that they are developing the agenda for what their community needs. So they may not want to know about all of the decks being built or the expansions and things. So what we're doing right now in building out that internal mechanism is identifying what the top policy focus areas are as determined by the cultural district. So then we can respond and give them the information that they're wanting. It's a little bit of a, a meet in the middle um, strategy. So I think that's going to that's gonna work well because we don't want to overwhelm them and give them information that doesn't align with their efforts. Yeah, and all of this discussion, I think, is going to help the public to understand, you know, what this is all about as well. So thank you. Well, one more thing on the tenderloin that you were saying, there are a number of, of health issues. And that's a good example of how there is an intersection in, of, of multiple efforts. So the Transgender Cultural District is within the tenderloin. But within the tenderloin, we have a broader effort. And as you know, uh, planning has taken the lead on trying to address some of the challenges in the tenderloin as the emergency response that we had. So we have a coordination of the various community groups, community networks, uh, and the cultural district is one of those uh, players in that overall process. And they have been involved in some of the health planning, housing business strategies uh, playing as as Julia was saying, their specific role to support their community. Mm, that's very good to know. Thank you, Commissioner Wright. Can I just ask one question before? Sure. Um, I just to stay on the the area of the tenderloin. Uh, is it possible for con uh, cultural districts to geographically overlap? So if there is like a little Saigon who is interested in creating their own cultural district in the tenderloin. Oh, yeah. I know right now we have one, two cultural districts that overlap so between Soma no, Filipinas, but I don't know how the program. It's not prohibited, but it's also written in legislation that it's not encouraged. It doesn't say shall not overlap. It can overlap, but it, we don't encourage that. But what se. happens if the needs of a particular community do, are not met by the cultural district that is there now? It, it could, it's feasible. It's feasible. It's not precluded. So they could decide to create their own cultural district. Yes, they Even would work with their supervisor and begin that process with the, yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, Commissioner Wright. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, had a couple of questions. Just, um, I mean, it seems like there there is a lot of overlap um, with different efforts, departments, um, cultural districts. Um, but in, I'm I'm kind of curious, with regard to the cultural districts, um, you know, what are like kind of um, like the 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 HPC 
responsibilities or involvement. Um, it seems like it, it's clear that there are, are several indirect responsibilities that might come to us through the housing element, um, project reviews, context statements, um, other things through the planning department. Um, but are there, are there direct um, responsibilities or other direct responsibilities that we should be thinking of um, in terms of uh, reviews or, or other engagement? Sure, I can help address it and then maybe Miriam and Julia can, can help bolster. Um, so in general, for most of the cultural districts, you'll see that their mission overlaps heavily with a lot of the kind of work that the preservation team does, particularly on SF survey and the, mm -hmm. um, you know, our work on cultural resource identification. So like, for example, for the African-American historic context statement, we are working very closely with the African-American arts and cultural district. Um, on the Pan-Latino historic context statement, we're working very closely with Calle 24 and other groups that are coming out of both the mission as well as um, the Latino community citywide to make sure that we both get you know, good representation as well as um, hear the community voice that um, needs to be heard in, the, in those documents. Um, you know, I think uh, a lot of what our approach is lately on uh, our survey work and on our historic context statements, we, we really want to make sure we're capturing what the community voices are and the cultural districts become a great venue and avenue for centralizing that voice in particular. Um, so that's quite a bit on how the a kind of HBC's involvement overlaps with yeah. the cultural district. In, in general, I will say the HBC doesn't have a regulatory role um, as involved with the cultural district. So as they work through their chess reports and other um, documents that the city is requiring them um, to produce, the commission doesn't have a formal role in that process. Um, but obviously a lot of our work, if you look at a, a Venn diagram, kind of overlaps. And so it's helpful that one effort bolsters the other, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, thank, thank you. And uh, you know, I'm just curious if, um, it, it does make a lot of sense um, with regard to um, the SF survey effort too. Um, and I, I, I don't know. Are, are, is there an opportunity for that effort to advertise, um, you know, in their outreach to the communities that cultural districts are a thing? It's not set in stone. There are there's room for new ones or creation of other ones. Uh, that you know, maybe that's another one of the flyers or information that gets passed to um, to the neighborhoods when the survey is happening. Um, you know, because I making more work for our our great, lovely staff. No, but it what? seems like a really great opportunity to um, to engage the residents, um, especially where there's a lot of uh, uh, you know cultural heritage involved. Like like I'll say this a great way that the cultural district program works right now is providing a streamlined access point for all of the opportunities the city has for it right like we have a lot of programs that are out there like so many and it is a little um <laughs> daunting from the community's end to realize what it is that you know i or our community can get access to and the cultural district program helps 
um, to basically facilitate that access. And it's partly why you know the mayor's office exists is to make the connections between the groups and the various departments and agencies and policies and you know regulations that that might impact them and then help them kind of move their agendas forward um, appropriately. Yeah, it seems like there's um, an opportunity for um, other districts, um, you know, outside of the ones that already exist to tap into that. Just just to add to what Bridge was saying, um, beyond the, the cultural districts are a very important platform and have allowed us to understand what the Japanese community went through, what the American Indian community has been gone, has gone through and is going through. But that's not the only platform. So in many other areas, we have community development strategies, like in the Fillmore right now, or in Chinatown where we have created plans, or SOMA as an integrated platform. So um, the, there are many vehicles for the planning department and in collaboration with other city agencies to address the needs of each community. And as Rich was saying, there are also vehicles to recognize, whether it's through the legacy business program or the survey, to recognize the various components that anchor us as uh, a San Francisco in our history and our resources. Uh, are you, I, I just wanted to follow up on what uh, Commissioner Wright kind of was going to, I think, and um, what Mr. Sucre responded to about kind of the direct response at the HPC. How can we be more involved or more informed about things that are happening in the cultural districts? And then um, with you, Mr. Sucre, telling us that we don't really, or I don't know, Miriam, if we don't, we don't really have a, the, the commission doesn't really have a formal role in the process. Um, I asked for this informational meeting to happen because I had a big concern. And my concern was when we heard um, the Castro Theater and I felt that there was not a clear connection uh, or they did not feel that they had the ability to come talk to us at the HPC, uh, they being the representatives of the Castro LGBTQ uh, cultural district, didn't really, I don't think there was a direct or maybe a, not an automatic or maybe um, not in any way assumed connection that they could have that connection with us directly. And um, that was a, that's a big concern to me because I wanna make sure that all cultural districts feel that they have the direct uh, ability to talk to us at the HPC, particularly when it comes to um, really important buildings of historic integrity. And so um, even though we might not have a, a, a formal role, I'd like to see how we could strengthen the role or strengthen the communication between what happens in cultural districts, particularly when it involves um, a, a building of historic integrity to um, the HPC. So that's kind of one question that I have. I don't know if that was what you were getting at, but that's kind of what, what I'm really yeah. interested in seeing. And then I just have some other questions about, um, you know, the way the budget is, how budgets are allocated per cultural district, um, where the expansions of cultural districts will happen next, and just whether these cultural districts have the opportunity to talk to one another. Yeah, I'll address the first one and I'll let uh, Grace and Julie address the other one. I think that's a good point. So as, as we have explained, the cultural districts 
were created by the Board of Supervisors and they have the obligation to report on the completion of their chess reports to the Board of Supervisors. But that doesn't preclude from um, them knowing about your interests and, and uh, the role that you can play in strengthening their work. Um, I, I think that as, as the cultural districts proceed with their projects, we can keep you updated. We can keep you informed or on what's the status of, of each cultural district. Um, at the same time, I will mention that each cultural district, the, the intention is that this is community grounded, community based. So we have, we as a city, whether it's MoCD planning or AWD, we have very little interference in how they get organized, how they come together. So uh, there's a, a kind of a tender space for them to come together and to figure out how they want to define themselves, how they want to define their visions and, and their process. So sometimes they might have stronger administrative resources or more clarity. Sometimes they will need to negotiate among themselves. So we try to be there when they need us, but not necessarily shape their structure or or their work, but I'll let my colleagues complete. Understood. I mean, but I think we we at the HBC would like to just be proactively um, available for them, and at least be known about what we do and where we govern, uh, particularly when it comes to historic properties. Yeah, that's okay. very important. And. They will elaborate a little bit more on the coordination because there is quite a bit of coordination among the cultural district, and we can brief them on the session that we just had today and keep them informed about your interest and, and desire to support them. Yeah, Commissioner Matsuda, just to pick up on that, I think that's particularly where you know Julia's work on the liaisons is helping out. In particular, like with our staff, there's a planning staffer now assigned to each culture district and that staffer is responsible for for really engaging with them and understanding like what their needs are and then also how to connect them back with um, the rest of like planning's work so like for example you probably saw uh, I'm the liaison for the Castro LGBTQ one as well as the leather um, cultural district and a lot of my work now is to kind of like help flush out with them and understand both what planning has to offer um, and or make them aware of things that are happening, you know, across the city that, you know, they might have interest in, so. Thanks, and I think um, I do want to acknowledge that a lot of these organizations were started when the program was started, so these are really nascent nonprofits or fiscally sponsored projects, and so a lot of the work that they're doing right now is kind of getting a better understanding of the city landscape and which departments to turn to for which types of information and resources. And one of the things that we do on a monthly basis is hold an all-cultural districts meeting um, where we gather all of representatives from all the cultural districts. Sometimes we have guest speakers, like this past month we had representatives from MoCD in our housing department talking about Dahlia, how um, cultural districts and their constituents can access, uh, you know, rental assistance, uh, legal assistance, things like that. And so, you know, we're trying to build up 
their knowledge because they're connectors and conveners for the broader community. So perhaps in the future, we can have a representative from this commission come and speak at one of their meetings to talk about the work that you do and have um, that direct line of communication. And I also do want to stress that, you know, like everyone's been saying, the cultural districts are very much designed to be community driven. So we really rely on them to set the agenda for what they want to prioritize um, and not uh, dictate, you know, like what they should really focus on. And of course, with such diverse communities, they really have a lot on their plate. Um, I think you asked also about the budget. So, and I think Julia might have a little bit more detail around this because she was involved in the founding legislation. Um, but there is a, uh, it's, we get about, I'd say approximately $3 million a year from the hotel tax funds. And this past year we, or we're in the process of encumbering um, a base funding of $230,000 for each cultural district. So we give them the same base amount of funding and they can choose to focus on um, how they want to use those funds, you know, predominantly going for staffing and baseline operations. And so I know there was a question about whether expanding the program. Just one thing to note is that bucket doesn't get any bigger. There would just be, you know, more slices of the pie. Not to say, not to stop any community group from, um, you know, looking into starting a, a cultural district, but there are limited resources that I want to recognize. Did you want to add? Um, you said it basically. There's a, a very, it's a complicated structure on how it's funded from the hotel tax fund and how it's able to increase or decrease only by 10% depending on the revenue and how that's projected and then how that actually lays out. So it, we've actually never hit the three million. It has been at the two and a half around that and then with the pandemic, it was shockingly low, um, right? So four per, only 4% of the hotels were in use, so the bottom fell out of our funding. Um, so it is not a automatic funding allocation. It's one pot of pie that is the resources are limited, and every time a new cultural district comes in, the resources are then reduced for the others. And we do... we. We began this project and this program with an equity framework, and that is why every cultural district receives the same base amount. It's for their operation funds because that is the hardest type of funding to get as a nonprofit, how to pay for rent, how to pay for your director, um, with being fiscally sponsored and 10 to 15% going to your fiscal sponsor, that roughly $200,000 actually gets spent very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but there's, we can follow up with other items, but that's the base info. Okay, thank you. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah, I mean, I think that helps, and your information about um, holding these monthly cultural district meetings is really important, I think, for, for people to learn from one another. And if we can be uh, a part of that monthly meeting to just listen and observe, I think that would be very helpful. Um, and then just getting back, I, I think it's great to have 10 cultural districts, but I think there is need for more, to be very honest with you. I don't think it's capturing all the culture that we have in the city and county of San Francisco. So um, even though it may reduce the budget per the cultural districts now, I don't think it should be limited to just them. And that's just my own personal opinion. Um, 
Commissioner Wright, did you have any? Yeah, I, I, I thought of something else while we were um, listening to the, uh, the great explanations. Um, regarding the funding question, um, it was interesting to hear that, you know, when you were mentioning that the funding kind of fell out, the bottom fell out when, um, you know, the hotels were down uh, during the pandemic. And I'm just curious how that resolved. It did Was there funding to kind of, um, you know, emergency funding, separate funding that came in? Because it seems like you, when you think about it, it, getting the funding from kind of the hotel source makes sense, um, but in, in a kind of rare situation like we had then, um, that's really when the cultural districts might need it most and when there's like the least amount of uh, resource available. So I'm just curious, um, you know, what was the resolution with that? And, and it does make sense to, to, on a separate note, that you're kind of walking the line um, and allowing the cultural districts to kind of create their agendas because um, there's enough that's uh, you know, kind of dictated and regulated, I think, to people. Um, but uh, you know, just keeping people informed about what's possible, uh, what the benefits of these districts are, if we can expand them to more, and maybe just sounds like the liaison approach is helping. Um, will help um, as well if if other cultural districts just know what or if the cultural districts just know what the other ones are doing or what they're talking about um you know and kind of probably gain steam and ideas um for running their own but um yeah question about the um the funding res yeah. resolution um it was when the formula structure was put in place we could have never guessed and you know on so many different layers nobody would have guessed the pandemic would have happened um but what we did, it was worked very, I was at Mayor's Office of Housing Community Development, and we worked very closely with the Mayor London Breed's office, and um, she partnered with the cultural districts, met with the city steering committee, and she backfilled the funding commitments that we had made to the cultural districts from the general fund. Um, it was a very important decision that that happened. It illustrated the commitment San Francisco had and continues to have to the work product and outcomes the cultural districts provide, not just on community development and community building, but um, actual factual giving of immediate resources and the immediate um, COVID testing sites that they sprung up and the things, the activities they provided. Um, that's how we resolved that. And then your continuing question, beyond the monthly cultural districts meeting, they they do, many of them work together, many of them share resources, chess ideas, different opportunities, curriculums, um, have subcommittees of different cultural districts. They are deeply engaged with each other on the budget, city budget process and have shared learnings across them without us at the table. And then we also come to the table with them. So it's a very strong network uh, and web of community and I do want to I do want to texturize and add that there the cultural district program is about four years old, but there is a plethora of community brilliance in all of San Francisco. And so it's important that we don't 
over-rely on cultural districts as the only stakeholder um, that can create some tensions in our neighborhoods. We, and so if there are ways that we can think through how other uh, cultural anchors and, and community organizations that have been around for decades can also be a resource just because they're not a district doesn't mean they shouldn't be part of the conversation. Yeah, I think that's very important. But they don't come to the table with money, right? Only the cultural districts get money and so I, I could see that that could be a bit of a friction with, with some neighborhoods. Okay, any other questions or comments from the commission? Well, thank you very much for your presentation. It's helped a lot to, I think, inform us about more of the details and the process and procedures. So we would look forward to having more information on a regular basis, particularly about monthly meetings of the cultural districts and definitely about um, issues that may come up in the cultural districts that affect what we do here at the HPC. Thank you. Okay, with that, that concludes your agenda today, commissioners. Thank you. We're adjourned. Thank you, everyone.